Turn now together in God's word to Romans chapter 8, verses 26 and 27. Welcoming those visiting with us as we continue in this series through the chapter that Derek Thomas says is the greatest chapter in the Bible, Romans chapter 8. Hear now God's word. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So far, the reading of God's holy word. May he bless it today to us by his Holy Spirit. It was a short story written in 1936 during the Spanish Civil War. Ernest Hemingway writes about a father and his teenage son, Paco. The story is set in Spain. Paco was a very common name in those days. Paco wants to become a matador, kids, to go fight the bulls. He wants to escape his father's control. He runs away to the capital, Madrid. As a last resort, the exhausted father, desperate to reconcile with his son, follows him to Madrid and puts an ad in the local newspaper, hoping his son would see it and respond. The ad read, Dear Paco, Meet me in front of the Madrid newspaper office tomorrow at noon. All is forgiven. I love you. Love, Father. Hemingway then writes, The next day at noon, in front of the newspaper office, there were 800 Pacos, all seeking forgiveness, looking for a relationship with their dad. Beloved, the world is full of Pacos, people in need of forgiveness and reconciliation. The good news of the gospel is that God showed his love to us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we can be reconciled to a holy God through Christ by faith and by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we have the inner testimony of the Spirit, loved ones, that we are children of God. And as children of God, the first and greatest privilege that you have right now is to speak to God as your Father in prayer. It can be hard to pray. It can be hard to know what to pray. That's what Paul tells us here in this text. And yet, as we consider the triune God, it reminds us of what prayer is. God the Father calls you to himself and draws you into communion through Christ our mediator who made a way, a new and living way for us to the Father by his blood that was shed, his body that was broken. Christ merited our prayer through his suffering and death. Jesus teaches us to pray the Lord's Prayer. 
And now we see the Holy Spirit comes to help us. The gospel sustains us as we suffer. The Spirit sustains us in our weakness. And we are reminded again of God's love for us today, loved ones. That you are his children. He is your father. Nothing can separate you from that love. And the Spirit is the bond of that assurance. First, who is the Holy Spirit? It's important to ask that question because Romans 8 speaks of the Holy Spirit more than any other one chapter in the Bible. The Spirit is not a ghost. The Spirit is a person, set apart, holy, belonging to God. He is God's power and presence among his people. He has a personality. He speaks to Philip in Acts 8 and to Cornelius in Acts 10. The Spirit spoke by the prophets in the Old Testament. The Spirit is not just a person, but a divine person, the eternal Spirit, sharing the same essence with the Father and the Son, and yet distinct. The Holy Spirit is the Spirit of God and the Spirit of Christ we've seen in Romans 8. The Holy Spirit was present at creation in the Old Testament, hovering over the waters. The Spirit was leading God's people by fire and pillar in the Old Testament, in the Exodus. The Spirit equipped God's people in the artistry of the tabernacle, which was to be a picture of the heavenly tabernacle. The Spirit gifted Samson. You wonder, kids, how he did that by the Spirit. The Spirit could come on someone like Saul in a non-saving way and then depart. The Old Testament, though, looked forward to the coming age of the Spirit. And we read in the New Testament, the Spirit comes and overshadows Mary in the virgin conception. The Spirit rests on Jesus at his baptism. It's by the Spirit of God that Jesus cast out demons. It's through the eternal Spirit that Christ offered a sacrifice to God on the cross. Jesus was declared to be the Son of God by power, by his resurrection from the dead, through the Spirit of holiness. And the Spirit is poured out on all believers at Pentecost, indwelling us. So what does the Spirit do? Well, Kevin DeYoung, as I quote from his article, says, the Spirit convicts us of sin, of righteousness, of judgment. The Spirit regenerates you. You're a new creation. The Spirit is the bond by which Christ unites us to himself. The Spirit renews and sanctifies us, writing God's law on our hearts. Word and Spirit go together. So as DeYoung says, I hope my people hear a better sermon than I preach. Meaning, by the Holy Spirit, that happens. Spurgeon would say, I believe in the Holy Spirit every time you went up to preach. The Spirit is at work fixing our eyes on Jesus. A Spirit-saturated church is one in which glory is brought to Christ, in which the church loves the gospel. The Spirit equips us to serve. We saw that two weeks ago in Romans 12. Giving you gifts. The Spirit gives you courage and boldness and faith and wisdom. 
The Spirit has sealed you objectively. And the Spirit's love comes upon you as we pray for that love to be poured into our hearts. Romans 5. We enjoy God because of the Spirit. The Spirit is like the engagement ring God gives you. God says, you, don't know, you have no idea how much I love you. This is the beginning. I bless you in Christ, in the Spirit. There's a wedding feast to come. Until then, Christ has ascended, but you are not an orphan. You are weak, but you have the Spirit as your helper. Secondly, what does it mean that we are weak? And what do we need as we are weak? Sometimes cheering at a sports event can help a team. Maybe you've been to a home game at Arrowhead Stadium or Penn State or Duke or your own high school. The home crowd gets behind you and it propels you. Sometimes cheering can distract you. Maybe you're shooting free throws and your dad yells out really loud, bend your knees, and you're totally lost. Sometimes cheering can actually be delusional. Alistair Begg was at a football game, he says. He heard this cheer continually. You can do it. You can do it. Yes, you can. Yes, you can. He kept hearing it throughout the game, even as the home team was being annihilated. And he says, no, you can't do it. You aren't any good. You're losing. You're weak. In a very different sort of way, the Spirit comes to help us in our weakness. And we might think, well, I can do it. I can do it. I can, I can. I'm a confident, self-assured, in-charge kind of person. I don't need the Spirit. Well, what kind of weakness is this talking about? The Bible and the psalmist talks of how God comes to rescue the weak. It is in our weakness and humility that God meets with us and communes with us. Prayer is an exercise in saying, I am weak. I can't do it. I'm in need. Why would you pray unless you realize that? So what often keeps us from prayer, isn't it? True, is our pride, our unbelief. I can do it, I can do it, I can, I can. Paul says we're weak. What kind of weakness? Well, there are physical weaknesses. Old age, affliction, sleeplessness, sickness. Those things affect how we live and how we pray. But in the context, that's not what he's talking about, is it? What does he say? We're so weak, we don't even know what to pray for. He's tying it in with the will of God. He's saying, our weakness. Do you notice that? Paul says that. So our weakness in prayer is not just something we struggle with or someone that's a new Christian struggles with. Moses struggled with it, Deuteronomy 3. He goes to God, he says, I want to enter the promised land. And God says, enough. It's quite a passage. Moses was struggling with the will of God. Paul himself has a thorn in the flesh. Three times he says, God, remove it. What was it? We don't know. A physical ailment? A problem with his eyesight? We're not told. 
God says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Jesus himself, in his human nature, is greatly distressed in the garden, crying out, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. We're all weak here. We don't know what to pray for as we ought. Because our knowledge of God's will is not exhaustive. Now, neither is it non-existent. We know God's revealed will in his law. Summarized in loving the Lord and loving one another. God's spiritual will is that we would know Christ better. That we would love what God loves and hate what God hates. So what is it we don't know? The secret will of God. The decretive will of God. We struggle when God's providences in our life seem to contradict his promises. Ted Turner, the old Braves owner, one person talks of him. He says, I abandoned Christianity when my sister died. She was 12. She got lupus. It ruined her mind. She became insane. She died at 17. How could God let my sister suffer? She didn't do anything wrong. I prayed an hour a day for her, he says. And she died. And he dismissed Christianity. It was not the will of God for her to live. The book of Job speaks of this. Not seeing the overall purpose. Living in the dark. Maybe you are struggling with bitterness. With suffering. With being angry with God. We are reminded that we walk by faith and not by sight. We groan like we saw last week. Our souls ache. We struggle with dullness and weariness, unbelief, and confusion. Sometimes we're in a perplexing situation. We're in darkness. Sometimes the struggle with God's will is, should we apply for a new job? Should we move somewhere else? Should we help out with this need? Should we take up a new hobby? Should we pursue a relationship if we're single? God doesn't say nothing about those things. But we don't have the secret will of God. We may be in an indecisive moment. Here's what Derek Thomas says. Maybe our children aren't walking with the Lord. And they're in trouble. How do you pray for them? Deep down, you know that sometimes the way God brings people to himself is by bringing them to an end of themselves. How do you pray for that situation? Maybe you know someone who's very ill. You're praying that God would heal them, but you know that it might not be God's will to heal them now. It might be God's will to heal them and take them home to glory. We struggle. Some say, well, If we don't know what to pray, then what's the point of praying? Then just chuck it all. But that's a false conclusion, isn't it? God's revealed will 
is pray, pray without ceasing. And God brings about his sovereign will through the means of prayer in a mysterious way. In prayer, we offer our desires to God. In prayer, God conforms us to his will, his desire, by giving us help. Third, where do we find help as we pray? Beloved, I don't want you or me in our weakness to be discouraged from praying. In fact, the opposite we pray happens. That our weakness reminds us of the Spirit's help. Romans 8.26 says, likewise, connecting what we saw last week with today, we have a longing, a hope, a promise to be with the Lord. We wait eagerly with patience. And you have God's direct help right now. He hasn't left you alone. The Spirit has helped us earlier in Romans 8 by freeing us from the law of sin and death, helping to set our mind on the things of God, dying to sin, living to righteousness. Now, this is a very interesting word for help. It's only used one other time, as commentators say. Martha and Mary, do you remember, kids? Martha's anxious, troubled. Jesus is at her home. She's thinking, well, i, I got to get everything ready. She's distracted with serving. And there's Mary listening and sitting at Jesus' feet. Lord, don't you care? My sister's left me alone. Tell her to help me. Same word here. Jesus, can't you get her to come alongside me so the burden can be carried? The Holy Spirit helps us by bearing our burden. Picture carrying a heavy load. You're struggling with it. Derek Thomas has a story about a piano. Have you ever moved a piano? He said he had this big piano to move. It was old, and there was one word to describe it. Do you know what it was? Heavy. So when you have a heavy piano to move, what do you do? You find strong people you know to help you. So he's getting gets together these strong guys, and he says they're moving the piano together. He has his hands under it. He makes grunting noises and sounds as if he's really lifting it a lot. But if he's absolutely honest, he says, I wasn't carrying it much at all. The others were bearing the load. Sometimes you think it's all you, and it's actually the Holy Spirit through you, helping you with prayer enabling you to do what you and I can't do in our own strength. 1992 Olympics, Derek Redmond, remember that story, those who are old enough? 400-meter dash, he's running and gets partway through, and he pulls a hamstring. And who comes out of the stands but his dad to help him finish the race? His arm is around him. And they finish together. That's a picture of this. The Holy Spirit intercedes for you. He stands between you and I in our weakness and a holy God. And we see that in a very interesting verse, 27, in groanings. Do you see that word? What an interesting phrase. Wordless groanings. What's going on here? 
Who is doing the groaning? Is it you or is it the Holy Spirit? Who has ever asked that question? Maybe today's the first time you thought of it. Commentators that we would love differ on this. Some have interpreted the text to mean the Spirit helps you in your struggle utter some sort of speaking in tongues. Have you heard that before? Maybe not. That you can't put into words. I don't think that's what's happening here. In particular, because of the reference. Do you notice how the word is ordered? The groaning too deep for words goes back to where? In your text. The Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit who groans here. Paul has a progression. The whole creation is groaning. Earthquakes. Suffering. We saw that last week. The individual believer is groaning. Who will set me free from this body of sin and death? Now the Holy Spirit groans. This is mysterious. God groaned with sorrow in the book of Genesis when he saw the evil of man. Jesus groaned with sorrow. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me on the cross? And now the Holy Spirit groans. Do you remember the idea here of helping and a burden? A groan is appropriate to bearing a burden, carrying a big, heavy piano. And someone who really is carrying your burden groans with you. You know that as a friend, as a spouse, as a church family. When one that you love is suffering and groaning, you are groaning right there with them. You are praying with them. You are crying with them. You are together with them. In your distress, God is not just watching you. This is not like your voicemail that is pre-programmed. Please leave a message after the tone. This is not like Siri. It's not a pre-programmed kind of distant thing. It's personal. The Spirit participates with you in your need. The intimacy of it, the nearness of it, the readiness of the Spirit to help, underneath you are the everlasting arms of God. God is your refuge and strength. You and I don't need to pretend We are better off than we are. God knows your weakness. He wants to help you. What does it mean that the groans are wordless then? Strange, isn't it? Again, mysterious. Verse 27 helps. Who searches hearts and minds? God does. Who knows the mind of the Spirit? The Father does. God knows our struggles better than we know them ourselves. And if God knows your mind, he certainly knows the mind of the Spirit because the Father is in the Son and the Son is in the Spirit and the Spirit is in the Father and in the Son. The mysterious indwelling of the three persons of the Trinity. When the Spirit speaks, the Father hears. In your hearts, the Spirit is interceding to the Father for you.
Our weakness is not knowing what to pray for as we ought. The groanings of the Spirit are not spoken because God knows the Spirit's intention without it being expressed. That's the idea, I think. What does this mean practically? We struggle with prayer. When we pray, it's like one man says, a young boy wanted to gather some flowers for his mom. He went to the garden. He grabbed a bunch of flowers, and along with them, what did he get? Weeds. He brings them to his dad. His dad cleans them up, takes the weeds out, and presents them in their beauty to his mom. Spurgeon says, I'm thankful my prayers go to heaven in the revised version. The Spirit fixes our prayers on the way up. I don't know about you, but often my prayers are very focused on me. Selfishly, sometimes. I pray with ignorance. I'm short-sighted. My motives are mixed. I think this is best, but it might not be. I'm too satisfied with earthly created things. I don't pray for satisfaction in God like I should. This prompts the Spirit's groanings. I want things to be easier. I want everything now, but that's not God's will for me or you. God doesn't give us the Holy Spirit to make our lives easier. He gives us the Spirit to conform us to the image of Jesus. God wants to reveal Christ's glory in our life individually, as a church, more than he wants our ease of life. The Spirit works to form Christ in us, fixing the prayers so they go unblemished and perfect to the throne of the Father. The Spirit knows your indwelling sin and mine. He knows where you're struggling. He knows where you have a big decision to make and you don't know what to do. He knows when you're lonely and tempted. He knows the perfect will of God for you because he is God. He knows where you're at in your marriage. In struggling with your kids, perhaps. In frustration with someone at church or someone in your family. He knows when you're frustrated like Martha was with someone who's not doing what they should be doing and I want them to do it. He knows when you're sick. He helps you by giving spiritual wisdom, by building up your faith in Christ, by stripping us of our self-centered focus. He doesn't get frustrated with you. Do you know how easy it is for us to get frustrated with one another? The Spirit is never angry with you. He can be grieved, yes, but he's not irritated. He loves you. When you pray, we are not in a one-way conversation. In prayer, God speaks through us to God. You are brought into the divine fellowship. The Spirit of the Son cries to the Father through us. What does this mean practically? One thing is that we have to avoid the danger of prayerless praying. What does that mean? Paul says in Ephesians 6, we are to pray, how? In the Spirit. Prayerless praying is just 
talking and mumbling without asking God for the Spirit to help us. It's easy to go there. By the Spirit, our first reaction in good news and bad news should be to pray. Prayer, one person said, is like raising a sail and asking the Spirit to fill it. How? Having our Bibles opened is one way. Reading the Psalms, using the words of David in Psalm 42 to be your words in your prayer. Memorizing the Bible. I don't know about you, but to the degree that I'm not memorizing Scripture, I tend to lose sight of the beauty of Jesus. And then as I pray, God, help me to memorize your word, I begin to meditate on it more and ask God to help me to seek Christ here. Practically, this also means as we pray for each other, the church directory, that very important book that you have, have it on your desk, at your table, open it up. And as you're praying, you might wonder, I don't know what to pray for right now for this person. But Holy Spirit, help them and help me to know to the best that I can how to pray for them by maybe reaching out to them and sending them a message. The Spirit prays for you in your sickness. Here's an example. Say you have a stroke. Say you have Alzheimer's, dementia. Your mind is going. The Spirit is praying for you, in you, to the Father. This is an amazing promise. You have an intercessor in your heart. And you have an intercessor at the throne of God. Believer, you have a double advocate. Jesus says in Romans 8.34 that he is interceding for us. Hebrews 7 tells us Jesus always lives to make intercession for us. Kids, you might wonder, well, what's Jesus doing right now? Have you ever wondered that? You know that he's the eternal son of God. You know that he came to earth, that he was born of a virgin named Mary. You know that he suffered under Pilate. We confessed that today, kids, didn't we? You know that he was crucified, dead, and buried. You know that he was raised from the dead. What else? He ascended into heaven, and right now, Jesus is praying for you. Do you believe that, little ones? Mom and dad. Those who are dealing with old age. We are to ask God for more of the Spirit's presence and Christ's presence in our life. We are to ask him to fill us with the Spirit's power. That we would like to have more repentance. We would like to grow in faithfulness in honoring the Lord. That we would want to be more courageous. That we would want to have a fuller fullness Jesus says you have to ask. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Ask for the Spirit to build up our faith. Do you remember Peter? This is a tremendous example of what this looks like. Luke 22. Jesus says to Peter, Satan has demanded to sift you like wheat. What did Peter say? Huh. I can do it. I can do it. 
I can, I can. Much like those people cheering. Peter thought, no way. In his overconfident pride, he is often in error but never in doubt. He doesn't understand his own sinful heart, and often we don't either. He didn't ask God for more strength. He didn't pray for help in his weakness. He said, I can do it. What did Jesus say next to him? Simon, in a few hours, before the dawn of the next day, you will fail me. But I have prayed for you. Satan wants to sift you, Peter. I pray that what will happen? Your faith will not fail. Jesus is praying for you, Emmaus Road. He's praying for us as a family. He's praying about your chronic pain. The Holy Spirit is groaning within you. He's praying about your marriage, your financial situation, your discouragement, your struggle with sin. He wants you to be secure in his love and in his fellowship and in his grace for you. He wants you to stand firm in him. Peter, I'm praying for you. And when you have turned, Jesus says that before all of this happens, before Peter denies Christ, Judas didn't repent. Peter did. Why? Behind Peter's repentance is Jesus praying for him. When you have turned, strengthen your brothers, Peter. What happened later in the life of Peter? The risen Christ comes to him. Simon, son of John, do you really love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Tend my sheep. Simon, do you really love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Feed my lambs. Simon, a third time, three denials. Do you really love me? Yes, Lord, you know I love you. Feed my sheep. Beloved in Christ, you have a double advocate, the spirit in your hearts, Christ before God's throne. Our prayers for one another our prayers that we remember that Jesus is praying for us. If you are a Christian, it's because the Son of God has presented your name to your Father. Remember, remember that as you pray together and with each other and for each other this week. Your name and the name of the person sitting next to you. Marion and Tom and Rick and Barb and Brendan and Noah, I'm looking at you. I love you. God loves you. Remember those names, that Jesus is presenting those names before his Father and yours. You are a part of a body, the body of Christ, a family who loves you, with a Savior who says, remember, in your sin, in the abundance of your struggle, I'm abounding in love. A Savior who says, in your weakness, my name is Compassion, and I am mighty, and I am willing to help. 
In your doubt, remember that Jesus says, oh, I forgive wickedness, the sins of nature and life, weakness and presumption, ignorance and sins against knowledge. I forgive, that is my name. In our unbelief, remember, the Lord says, I do not ignore sin. I have sent my son that justice might be done. But where there are weak, trembling sinners that desire to know my name and my love, look to Christ, look to God, the mighty, compassionate, gracious God, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands of generations, forgiving wickedness and sin. That is the name of your God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, amen.